Herald and News. Herald and News, your news now. Herald and News. Empowering the community. Basin Views. Herald and News, your news now. Klamath Falls, Oregon. Herald and News. Podcast. Empowering the community and serving the Klamath Basin. This is the Herald and News Basin Views Podcast. Greetings and welcome to Basin Views, a Herald and News podcast featuring interviews with local experts discussing issues important to the Klamath Basin. I'm Kurt Lidke with the Herald and News. This week, our guest is Sky Borgman, documentary filmmaker originally from the Klamath Basin and now calls Los Angeles home, serves as a USC professor, and has a new film coming later this month on Netflix. Sky, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. Oh, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be back in Klamath Falls and uh, enjoying the chilly weather. It's a good change from Los Angeles. Definitely start contrast to to what is uh, typical LA weather uh, this time of year. Well, before we delve into your fascinating film career and what you have coming up on the horizon that people can very soon watch on Netflix, I always like to start these off with a little bit of personal background. So if you could tell us a little bit more about who Sky Borgman is. Well, I grew up most of my childhood in Klamath Falls. I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. My dad was National Park Service, and he transferred to Crater Lake National Park when I was a kid, before I really started school. And so I grew up in Klamath Falls. I went to Conger, I went to Ponderosa, and then I went and graduated from Klamath Union High School. So I was a Pelican. And uh, during my time here, we spent, I mean, most of our time outdoors, really, you know, with Dad being with the National Park Service and with the area being so amazing, we just were out camping, uh, traveling around. We would pretty much every summer drive back to Oregon and camp. And it was just a really great childhood and a really great place to grow up. And it was in high school, really, where I first got involved with theater in a, in a, in a way that I kind of thought this is something I might do for the rest of my life. Or I don't know if I thought I would do it for the rest of my life, but I thought, you know, as a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl that this was the thing for me. And, uh, and that's where my love of, of storytelling in a public way, I think, really began. So how did growing up in the Klamath Basin shape your career path? Because I, I would think a lot of people who grew up in this area think that Hollywood is such a different part of the world that there's no way that you can come from an area like this there, despite several people being from this area who have become successful filmmakers, in particular James Ivory, who's now 90 years old, has been in the film industry since the 1950s and won an Academy Award this year. Still, I think a lot of people who grew up in this area they think that the idea of ever being able to work in film or television or or music for that matter is just so such a different world it's not even possible yeah i i think i felt that way uh when i was growing up here i didn't really i it, it wasn't even a consideration to me that that filmmaking was something that i could do i think what the area and really what my parents gave me was just this idea that i could do anything uh and it was just really having anything available to me that that I didn't really feel like I had. You know, that's why it makes me so happy now to know that the festival is here, that there are film classes that are now offered, and that there's more of a filmmaking community that's here. I also think it's wonderful that that so much of the technology has gotten to a point where it's easy for a high school kid to have their iPhone or any phone and make a movie on it. You look at a film like Tangerine that was shot on the iPhone and huge production companies that are shooting content exclusively on the iPhone and you just, and everything is available to people now for maybe not free, but 
really, really close to it. If you've got a cell phone, you can make a movie. You can download editing software for free. You can put something together and you can really start thinking about what your voice is. And and to me, Klamath Falls was a huge part of that voice. And and experiencing everything the basin has to offer. We grew up on Klamath Lake. We were on Lakeshore Drive. So every summer I was swimming in the lake every day. I was water skiing. We were camping. We were traveling out to places and really experiencing what the community was about and walking to our neighbor, to the neighbor kids to, to play. And, and everybody on Lakeshore, you know, we would walk a quarter of a mile or half a mile to get and spend time with people. And it wasn't, it was different. You know, it wasn't, electronic devices in our hands all the time. It wasn't, I mean, we loved watching TV. Of course we loved watching TV, but there weren't 5 million programs on to watch. And, and so it was just spending a lot of time with people and outside that really kind of shaped, I think, who I am. And even now, I think it's funny that I live in Los Angeles because I'm not, I, I don't feel like I'm suited to Los Angeles all that well. I still like being outside. Uh, I feel like I'm a pretty down-to-earth person. And, and so when I come back or when we can go camping or when I can go out with a dog, you know, it's a really, it's a really great feeling to be able to, to be outside. But Los Angeles has great weather, so it's, <laughs> it's easy to be outside all the time in Los Angeles. So I know you haven't necessarily done very much filming around the Klamath Basin, but how has the Klamath Basin perhaps influenced your filmmaking process? Interesting. I think, I think it has been, I think growing up especially in the Klamath Basin, it was very much about a lot of different kind of people coming together. And um, whether we were in high school, in theater, like I think about my time in high school and in every high school there are these different cliques, you know. And I and I was talking to my husband the other day and I said, you know, when I was in high school, there weren't any mean girls. Like, like that whole movie about the mean girls and everything you hear about these mean girls, like they just didn't exist. There were the, you know, everybody just kind of, was pretty welcoming to everybody else. And, I, and maybe it's a, an anomaly, but there were just so many different people that I was in high school with. And I guess being in theater, I got a little bit of a chance to, to interact, and sports too. Theater and sports were kind of my thing in high school. So I got a good chance to kind of be friends with a lot of different kinds of people. And, and I think that's really what kind of started me, especially on the documentary sort of path, because... I just felt like everybody had a story and everybody had a really interesting story and and that propelled me to travel and it really has propelled me now to to just be interested in people and and to listen to people and even when we're shooting a documentary I I always tell my students at USC now too it's my cinematography students and we're talking about visuals and I'm saying the most important thing you can do is listen and 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 it also gives you this opportunity when you're there behind a camera and somebody's talking to you, you're not interrupting them and telling your own story. You're really just sitting there and letting them tell their story. And I don't think it happens very often where people can really just tell their story without interruption. And so it becomes this kind of magical space, I think. And and I think Klamath Falls really kind of was the the nucleus for for all of that happening and and high school especially KU where there were just so many different different personalities and we could all kind of coexist with all of the high school drama and trauma for sure but but in a kind of a healthy wonderful way 
Well, we should probably, before we delve into uh, your fascinating career, um, tell your story in terms of how you went from stage to screen. What, what made the transition from thinking that theater was going to be your path into suddenly grabbing a camera and being uh, behind the scenes? Yeah, a lot of that, I think, really comes from my father. He always had a camera in his hands uh, while I was growing up and loved taking landscape photography. And, and so I was always seeing him do that. And I think really when I, when I started doing theater, I, it was just this magical place and you could tell these other stories and, and the lights that would happen and, and just that fear of going on stage and are you going to forget your lines? And then that, that exhilaration when you wouldn't forget your lines and everybody kind of worked together to create this magical story was wonderful. And that magic is still very much there. And every time I walk into a black box theater, that feeling of just awe and magic and love still comes back to me. And they've all got this, no matter where you go, a black box theater across the world, they've all got this smell that just brings back such memories to me. And, and so that was very much a part of my life. And I ended up going to art school at Cornish College of the Arts, which was an amazing place for me. And I loved being in Seattle. I loved everything about that school. And I learned very quickly there that I, that it wasn't so much the applause at the end of the play that I loved, but it was the, the, the process of creating it. And I find it that I, I I found that I got a little bit bored performing night after night after night after night after night, and so I pretty quickly kind of changed gears when I was there into more of a um, a directing and a lighting sort of path, and and it was uh, incredible really because. Uh, uh, Bob Sandberg, who was there at the time, he's not there anymore, but he saw kind of what I needed and was able to kind of help me structure a program that would fit my needs. And I was incredibly lucky to have him on my side. And and so I was doing a little bit more of a path, still in theater, but but learning about lighting and learning about directing and, and, and what it took to sort of put one of these productions together. I still at that point didn't really didn't really know that I was going to move into filmmaking. It was really sort of after I'd graduated from Cornish and um, and spent a lot of time traveling the world, really, that I, I picked up a camera again, and I'd been gone for a few years, and, and I said, okay, what is it that I can do that combines photography, which I was getting this bigger and bigger love for, um, this public kind of storytelling, and travel, which I knew that I loved. And I kind of said, I guess that's filmmaking. And I'd never, I'd never made a film before. I'd never really, you know, we didn't have, we had a couple of little video cameras, but it wasn't something I was, you know, doing all the time when I was growing up. So I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I've got to come back to the States and, and, and get an education. And so I applied to USC and was accepted. It's been an interesting career path since uh, you came to USC. You've worked in television, you've worked in films, uh, theatrical films, uh, but you're perhaps best known for your documentary work. So what is it about documentary film that you find so appealing? I think it really goes back to um, learning something about somebody that I don't know and, uh, and really being let into people's lives that I normally wouldn't be involved in. And it's just such an honor, really, for people to open up the way that they do in documentaries. And, and I'm just always so 
amazed by the people that we go and interview or the people that we follow around for a certain period of time and what they've been through or what they're going through or how they accomplish things or achieve things or or how they deal with loss and tragedy or joy and and it's just that I think is what's the most appealing to me about documentary and and really telling stories that about people that may never be told in another way. And and that's what I love about it. Documentary film, I find fascinating too, but it is a little bit tricky. You know, as we had talked previously, I used to work in the entertainment industry as well. And so much of the industry is built around the amount of money that it makes, whether it's film box office, if you're working in music, it's album sales. And that is largely the criteria, you know, awards ceremonies aside in terms of this is a success or this was was deemed a failure. Documentary films so rarely get major theatrical releases. And usually it's because of a name attached from the filmmaker as opposed to the, the subject matter. Every now and then we see the uh, or a film come up that catches enough of an audience where select theaters pick it up, or very rarely there's a documentary that, that goes national, but it's rare. So how do documentaries get judged in terms of, of how you feel a project is a success versus a failure compared to films where more often than not they're being judged by it brought in a $150 million in box office revenue? Yeah, it's it's difficult and it's it's I think you have to have a pretty thick skin really to work in documentary. Uh you have to not not rely too much on what everybody is saying about it. Um and it's always this interesting thing because because of course you want to hear that people like it, but I've always said that it's more important to hear no's and when people don't like it and to be able to have a dialogue about things like that. But in terms of of success, uh I think it really is about about whether or not this this film is sort of accomplishing, I, I guess really it comes back to a kind of a personal thing, really, when you're thinking about success of a documentary. Is it accomplishing what you'd like for it to accomplish? And ultimately, is it allowing you a lifestyle where you can continue and make another documentary and then another documentary and another documentary? And even though it may not bring you millions and millions of dollars, does it allow you a place where you can go out find a story that you're completely intrigued by, film that story, put it together, and put out a perspective that maybe isn't seen before. And if you can continue making your living at doing it, to me, that's a gigantic success. One advantage of documentary filmmaking versus uh, theatrical releases, too, is that you're not really spending a lot of time on sound stages. Uh, Documentaries so much are about real life and going out in real settings. The films that you've worked on have taken you to some pretty incredible locations. So uh, tell us about some of the uh, projects you've been able to work on and some of the locales that uh, you've been able to visit. Yeah, I've been really fortunate. I um, I work as a director of photography with a director named Kumkum Bhavnani, and she is committed to telling stories about women in third world countries, and her stories are fantastic. And so I've I've traveled with her in a very small crew. There's There's four of us that have been working together for the last over 10 years, it's probably close to to 12 or 13 years now. And they live in England. One of them may live in Germany now. 
Kumkum's in Northern California. I'm in Southern California. And and we all just come together every few years or every other year and we'll go someplace and, and film for a couple of weeks. So it's this this kind of family coming back together again. And, and we've been really lucky because she's found stories and we've traveled to our most recent one that we're still in production on. Uh, is a story about science and monks. The Dalai Lama um, a, a few years ago said that it was very important to him for monks to learn science and to have religion and science not separate but come together. And so he instigated a, a big learning project where educators come over and, and, and teach monks science. And so we've been telling that story and then it sort of diverged a little bit and we wanted to, to come at it from a more of a female perspective. And so we went to the, the Buddhist nuns and we followed them for a little while. And now it's really, I think Kumkum is really working on finding someone who can lead the story. And uh, so we've traveled to Northern India twice um, we'll probably be headed back to southern India sometime in the next year. Uh, we worked on a film called We Are the Galapagos, and we were in the Galapagos three different times, Ecuador, uh, Nothing Like Chocolate, which is a story about an anarchist chocolate maker, and we were in Grenada, Guyana, and a couple places around the United States. But it's been it's been really wonderful working with her Um and, and telling stories about people in these third world countries, especially women in the third world countries. Well, you have a very fascinating new film that uh, for people in the Klamath area that maybe have been following your career but had difficulty in seeing some of your projects are now going to have very easy access to, because this is, uh, my understanding, your first film that's going to be available on Netflix, right? That's correct, yeah, in 190 countries, which Netflix is... I mean, it's revolutionized, really, the way that we experience films. And um, and I think Netflix has really revolutionized our relationship with documentary. I mean, it's it's them, really, that has, has created this, this buzz around documentary and created a real culture there. And, and from the beginning of making my latest film, which is called Abducted in Plain Sight, we knew that it was that our audience was a Netflix audience. And so when we were first talking about creating it or really editing it, you know, when we were when we were structuring the story and and putting it all together, Netflix was always kind of of in the back of our heads and kind of leading leading the way for us. So um yeah, we're really excited about it. So tell me all about abducted in plain sight. So it's a feature length documentary and about it's about a woman a girl who was abducted when she was 12 and again when she was 14 years old. And we really look at how a master manipulator, master manipulator infiltrated this family. And it was a family who was in uh, Pocatello, Idaho. The story happened in 1974. And it was a really curious thing for me because I read a book that the family had written. And as I was reading this book, I just couldn't understand how something like this could happen. It seemed completely crazy to me. And that was intriguing because I said, I just need to figure out how something like this could happen. And really the more, it became really an investigative journey for us because we had the book and uh, we did some interviews, but this is a story that happened 40 years ago. So memory comes into play and um, and I'm sure as, as as we all know we can sort of adjust our memories and tell ourselves one version of that memory and create a reality out of that and 
And I was curious to see if that had happened a little bit with the Brobergs, who were the family in the story. And and so the more we sort of dug and the more we reached out to the FBI and got documents from the FBI, we got court transcripts, we were able to kind of piece together the narrative that went a lot deeper than what the book went. And, and so we were really interested in, in finding out the little intricacies of what had happened. And it's a, it's a mind-blowing story. And it's not, it's not an easy film to watch. It's a, it's a film about a pedophile. And that's, you know, in marketing it, everybody said, don't say it's a film about a pedophile <laughs> because nobody wants to watch that. Mm. And so, and I didn't really want to work on that, you know. So it was really an interesting thing to me. How do you make a film and and have it not be about a pedophile, but have it have all of those story points and the intricacies and the structure that it needs to be a compelling, interesting story. And ultimately, as I think any documentary on the face of the planet will tell you, that could potentially, hopefully, save someone's life. And I think that's what we all sort of hope for, is that our work will have such a great impact, so much beyond what we do going out with a camera, sitting in an editing bay, that that it can touch a family and they go, wait a second, this is happening, or something similar to this is happening. And that little feeling that I've got in my stomach that's saying, this is not good, listen to it and do something about it. So um, so that's, that's what we've always wanted to do with the film. I wanted to start the conversation about child abuse, um, about... Uh, shame and denial and the movie's very much about all of those things and how shame and denial can completely paralyze us and make us do questionable things and if we can get beyond that then then we have a lot of power well the film will be available starting january 15th right uh on netflix but before that you've had a chance to take it out on the festival circuit and have select screenings so how has the reception been so far our festival circuit has been incredible. I mean, we've had we've had such amazing audiences and and it's always it's always interesting to sit in the theater with a theater full of people watching the film because they're verbal and they're shouting at the screen sometimes or just or talking to the person next to them or, you know, raising their hands up in the air or I mean sometimes people have left the theater and uh and so it's really interesting watching such a strong reaction to the film. It's, it's great as a filmmaker, honestly, to see that. Uh, and then afterwards, we always have a question and answer period. And they're just, they're just really wonderful because the questions are deep. They're philosophical. They're questioning. They're angry. They're sad. I don't think anybody's ever asked us what our budget was or what camera we shot on, <laughs> which is almost always the question after you watch a film at a film festival. They ask these sort of you know technical questions, and and ours is not a film where that even enters anybody's mind, which makes me incredibly proud. And it's just we've met people who come up to us after the screening and are crying and telling us that it happened to them, and we're the first people that they've ever confided this in, and. And that feels really good to know that that our film has had has the ability and the power to give someone their voice back. And that means a lot to me. And and it's happened a few times. And it's just such an incredibly touching, wonderful, empowering feeling when that happens. 
Well, you've had a pretty interesting career path uh, since going to Los Angeles. Uh, you've now established your own production company. Uh, and in addition to all of your film work, you are also a professor at USC. How did all that come about? Yeah, it's it's been sort of this growing this growing crescendo, I guess, um, or or avalanche, whichever way you want to go. <laughs> uh, I moved to Los Angeles in, in around 2000 and went to USC, and um, and it really was the beginning for me of, of forming some great friendships, and uh, and those friendships and those partnerships have really continued on, and I still work with people that that I'm either went to USC with or who I know from USC or went there afterwards. So that's been a really incredible uh, thing to me is to have that relationship. But uh, I had never really expected to work at USC as a professor. And a few years ago, I think four years ago, uh, Linda Brown, who's the the head of the cinematography department, called me and asked me if I'd be interested in teaching. And and I said, well, I've never, I've never taught before. I don't really, I'm not entirely certain how to do it, if it'll fit into my schedule. And, and we started off with one cinematography class a week and she said, well, just try it out this semester, see if you'd like it and we can figure things out from there. And it was really, I I have to admit, it really forced me to up my game and get really clear on a lot of the cinematography approaches and to be able to teach and articulate how to do something and why you do something and why somebody else may have done something teaching is phenomenal for doing that. And, um, and it's made me, I think it's the students absolutely make my work better because I mean, they're, all of them are younger than I am and they, they just view the world in a different way and they view the technology in a different way and they view storytelling in a different way. And with each generation, then there's each individual personality in class and they approach things so differently. And especially when you can get kind of stuck in a rut um, in your thinking and your approach to storytelling, it's phenomenal to be around students, um, younger people and older people too, that just do things in a different way and to be open to, to figuring that out or to be incorporating that into your own kind of personal style. So it's, it's been, you know, the whole trajectory has been really interesting because I've constantly been working. I knew very early on that cinematography was really my great love. I loved imagery and I loved, the process of creating and um, preparing and looking at how a story was going to look and how that would propel the story forward and how cinematography can elevate the story. And that's always been a complete fascination of mine. And so when we started our production company, my husband and I, uh, we started Top Knot Films in 2010. And it was really, we were trying to create something where we could have clients that could sort of pay the bills and where we could also have the time and the room to do our own personal passion projects. And I feel like we've gotten there where we've got, we work with Disney and Princess Cruises on a pretty regular schedule and it allows us to, to work on our other projects. And mine has been abducted in plain sight and it's been five years that I've been working on this film because you know, I have to go and shoot for money sometimes, and and then I have got to fund this one, and so so it takes a lot of time, and and I think ultimately the goal is really for the next doc that I do to to do it in three years. I'm just trying to pare it down a little bit as we go. As a videographer myself, I find 
oftentimes the story behind the story to be more compelling than the actual film. Uh, more often than not, anytime I pick up a new DVD or Blu-ray, the first thing I'm watching is the behind-the-scenes documentary before I actually wa- watch the movie because I love the process and the weird things that happen behind the scenes that oftentimes people don't hear about unless you really delve deep. A few months ago, I was lucky enough to have a very lengthy sit-down with Mr. James Ivory in the exact chair that you're in now, and he told me about uh, one of his films that he was working on in India where on the first day of filming, his lead actor got arrested and was stuck in jail for like a week or so, and they had to do all of their B-roll footage while trying to negotiate his release and all, all the weird things that can happen over the course of, of a project. I, I think some of the, the settings that I've filmed, and probably the strangest was being leaned over the side of a cliff to have hang glider pilots take off overhead. What's some of the stranger things that have happened in your various productions that, you know, you can laugh about it now. At the time, you panic, but now you can look back and laugh like, wow, we actually still finished that project despite this happening. Yeah, I think my fa- you can pretty much guarantee that something is going to happen on every production, and, and, and I think it's part of what I love. But my favorite story uh, is when we went down to uh, Guyana. We were in Guyana shooting for nothing, nothing like chocolate. And uh, we'd arrived, the whole crew had arrived to the airport. We'd gotten through and we went to go get our bags and none of the gear had arrived. So we said, okay, well, we just wait for the gear. And then we started to realize that there was only one flight a week that went to the small village that we were shooting in. And our luggage, while it would arrive the next day, it arrived after our flight left. So we had to make the decision. And I had the cameras, but I had nothing else. So we had to make the decision about what we were going to do. And we decided to take a boat to the village. What would have been an hour-long flight was a two-day-long boat ride. And so we organized the boat. It would leave immediately after we got our gear. And everything was going to be taken care of. And we go to get in this boat. And the boat is an 18-foot uh, outboard motor aluminum boat that we were going to be on for two days <laughs> through the rivers of Guyana. And so we got in the boat with all of our gear. We had, they had big tarps because it was pouring rain. And so we were, the gear was covered with tarps. We were covered with tarps. And we start down these rivers. And about halfway through the first day, the captain, who we called Uncle Jerry, uh, said that there's too much weight, we're using too much gas, we've got to get rid of half the stuff. And he goes, I've got a friend. And so <laughs> so we go about another hour up the river and we pull over to this tiny, tiny little house on the side of the river. And he goes, this is my friend, we can leave all the stuff here. So we unloaded everything we didn't need, which was our clothes, um, uh, we kept the gear, but we tried to get rid of all the heavy cases, and we got rid of all our clothes, so we kept, we wore the same clothes for the rest of the week shoot. We had everything we needed. We got to our location, we shot, and then in that location, we had power for an hour a day from a generator. <laughs> so we had to charge all the batteries and get all our downloading done and all of that. So it was, and it was, we had the time of our life. I mean, it was just, it was, it was amazing. You talked about technology a little while ago, and that is something that I find fascinating because up until just recently, and this is true for film and music, um, it was really cost inhibitive of being able to do it on, on your own. Now technology has advanced to where someone can make an album in their bedroom that sounds as good as being recorded at Oceanway, one of the million dollar studios in LA. People can make 
a movie on their laptop with their phone or with a small camera they buy at a local store that looks almost on par with major theatrical releases. Gone is now that technological gap. Now it's a creativity gap. It's not so much the... um, having the tools, it's having the skills to be able to maximize a, those, the, those tools. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It is something that it's, it's, it's really interesting to me because especially working at USC and we've got a ton of gear and they go out and they make their films and all of that. And I'm watching these films, um, and on the festival circuit too, and kind of going, you know, you really, the story has still got to be there. And that's something that I feel like has gotten really, really kind of lost as technology has sort of increased, our attention to story, I think, has really decreased. And and so many of these stories that I'm seeing out there, with especially probably short films, really more so than features, but features definitely suffer from it too, are telling interesting, complicated stories. And it's also an... Look, and we can talk about diversity, mm-hmm. you know, until the end of time, really. Um, It's bringing in diverse voices, which is great, but those diverse voices also need to have kind of the nuts and bolts of what makes a good story. And I don't know, I don't think it needs to be, you know, there's no like, like cookie cutter way that a good story needs to happen. But I do feel like there are, that's where we're falling down a little bit now is structure and script, really. And and I see it all the time in productions that I work on where we're rushing to production and we really need to be saying, hold on a second, let's work the script and let's get the script where it needs to be because you rush to production, you film it, it's not ready. You send it to post what you filmed and they're like, well, uh, 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 this isn't ready. And it's like, it, it's not ready because it wasn't ready to begin with. It's not that we fell down in production, or maybe we fell down in production, or it's not then that they fell down in post, or maybe they did, but really the script and taking, and that's where it's not that expensive to kind of go in and really get the script as perfect as you can. And look, it's all going to be a different movie when you shoot it, and then a different movie when you edit it. But if I think people really took the time to finesse and perfect the script, that's when the stories really, really are just a full notch better. Yeah. And to piggyback on on that, you know, the film industry as it stands today, look, I love explosions and fighting robots as, as much as, as anybody, you know, the way the technology has advanced to be able to present that on screen, you get it on 3d and the 5.1 surround sound. It's an awesome experience, but it's sort of like if you ate candy every day, you know, you need that, that full meal too. And that's where the story art comes in. And I do see a lot of really fascinating stories in film right now coming from the independent circuit as opposed to the major studios. Filmmaking has become so expensive these days. You look at the budgets and it's astronomical for some of the blockbuster films that they in a way kind of have to play it safe with focusing on effects and, and, and all that. But we have things like Fox's searchlight that goes out and finds really fascinating independently made films. And if it's quality enough, it's going to get that national release still. Yeah. I mean, look at Bergen's films, you know, I mean, I think that there, there are quite a few films that are, are independent, independently driven that are such great stories and complicated characters and, and it's not just that safe kind of avenue that the studios... I mean, they, you're right. I mean, the studios are almost forced to walk the same path that they've walked because they know it works and they can't really take the risk, whereas independents can. The, 
where the, the gap to me where that happens is between the independent movies getting made and the audiences seeing them because they're not getting, I mean, the P&A, the, the publicity budgets that the $200 million blockbusters have are giant and the indies don't have that much publicity. And so to get the word out there about the indie films and how great they are, it's not happening to the degree that it is for the bl- big blockbusters. So what what's great is, I mean, going back to the film festivals, going back to um, film-minded communities in towns like Klamath Falls who could bring some of these more independent films, and especially with the film festivals, to be bringing, festi- to be bringing independent films here and exposing audiences here to something that is different. It's not just Aquaman or uh, Transformers. It's, you know, uh, an Oregon-made film that is compelling and complicated and beautiful and something that isn't going to have $20 million in a publicity budget. And the, the among those film festivals, you know, Klamath does have uh, a Klamath film group. And every year in September, they put on the Klamath Independent Film Festival. And it seems to be getting bigger and bigger every year, which is great because it's focused exclusively on films that were either shot in Oregon or made by Oregon filmmakers. The Klamath area has had several contributors to that and has had several people, including yourself, who have gone on to quite great success in the Hollywood scene. It it was fascinating when I got down to to, uh, the Hollywood area, you know, as we've talked before, I spent about 12 years working in, in that industry. And coming from Oregon down there, I thought, you know, Hollywood, it's so influential, you know, it's so massive. For a scene that has such a profound influence on global culture, it's surprisingly small, and everyone kind of knows everyone. <laughs> it, it's the, these little, little circles that work with uh, their own little industries. You'd mentioned Bergen. Bergen Swanson grew up here in Klamath Falls. He is now a line producer that has worked on movies like Wild and Three Billboards Outside, I mean, Missouri. And he just this year had a film called Widows that, that came out. Of course, James Ivory grew up in, in Klamath Falls, and he's an iconic filmmaker. Was, I, I can't even, his IMD page is several pages long at this point. <laughs> Um, but he made films like Howard's End and uh, his most recent project, Call Me By Your Name, he won an Academy Award for. Um, in the course of festival circuits and just Hollywood being what it is, do you ever randomly run into James Ivory or Bergen Swans or someone with Oregon roots? You're like, oh, hey, Klamath Basin, right? You know, it hasn't happened, but I have to say that um, as I was driving up, we drove up uh, December to see Mom for Christmas. And as I was driving up, Bergen messaged me and he's like, Hey, so cool to know there's another Klamath Falls filmmaker. And I was like, this is cool, you know? And, and look, it happens in LA, it happens in New York, it happens all over, but just to have that kind of like-mindedness and that just, you know, we grew up in the same place. So there's a lot that I'm sure we have in common. It'd be really nice to sit down and have a beer with them at some point in time and sort of just talk about, you know, the Klamath Union Mazama rivalry. I'm sure we could... (laughs) Well, you've filmed in all sorts of different locations, but you haven't really filmed very much here. Uh, there are a couple shots that people will be able to recognize from Abducted in Plain Sight that you did shoot of, of just, you know, little B-roll shots. But at what point are you going to bring a crew or your camera back to Klamath and, and make something that's Klamath-centric? Yeah, tomorrow. I mean, I want to do it, you know, <laughs> so badly. And uh, I, well, I need to figure out the story. And to me, I was, as we were driving and my husband and I were driving in and I was talking to him and I'm like, so what, what story can we make here? Like, what is it, you know, as we're driving through the fields and the mountains and, uh, 
and I think it, to me, it seems like it's probably a scripted story, like something that is created or something that we could find that would be set in Klamath Falls. Um, I mean, it could be a documentary, but I don't, I don't have any idea what that would be right now. So uh, I don't know what it is. It would be fantastic because I think it would be, I think it would be so much fun to come back here. I think, uh, I think it would be phenomenal to work with people who live here in creating the film and um and I know that there are a lot of really talented people here so if anybody has a story for a really great movie let's work on it let's do it well we should talk to Klamath Film about that and the group and of course you know they put together Klamath Independent Film Festival um have you had conversations with them about possibly participating in the future in any capacity with the Klamath Independent Film Festival I need to yeah I need to reach out to them again I I I didn't even know they existed um before last year or the year before I think it was 20 2017 and my mom called me and she said there's a film festival here and it was when when abducted in plain sight was on the festival circuit and she's like it's happening next week you should call them and see if you can be in it and I said it takes a little bit more lead time than that but but let me I'll reach out to them and and see what's going on and a friend of mine had a film in the Klamath uh, film festival uh called shut up anthony and um, and we had been on the festival circuit for a while, Kyle, and um, and he was coming down, and he said the festival was amazing, he loved it, and um, and so I called, and and they said, well, our mission really is to focus on Oregon films made by Oregon filmmakers, uh, which I think is phenomenal. I think it's such a great a great mission, and I support it wholeheartedly. So my film wasn't eligible to kind of be in the festival, but um, but I'd love to bring it here. I'm sure there's a way to to sort of bring it up and and screen it at, at Ross Raglan or something like that. I know uh, Junk Dreams, another documentary that I made in 2007. We did a screening at Ross Raglan, and um, and it was phenomenal. It was just great. You talk about films made in, in Oregon, and I on a couple of occasions have gone deep down the rabbit hole on that and researching movies that have been made here it's it it makes sense in a way because Oregon is such a diverse state between the high desert in eastern Oregon and all the beaches and the thick forest there's a lot of different landscapes from from which to use as as a backdrop but some of my favorite movies I started going through some of the history of film and didn't even realize that they were filmed here there's also some really fascinating history in fact you may not know the first ever student film that was made was made by University of Oregon students really? in 1927 it's called Ed's Coed it's uh, you can see it on YouTube and, and such and uh, they had contacted Cecil B DeMille and with an idea of a movie about college life. And DeMille was so intrigued, he sent a film crew up to Eugene, and it's a silent movie. It came out in 28, so right at the very tail end of, of the silent movie era. But it was shot by Oregon students. It was scripted by Oregon students. It was acted by Oregon students. Now that may be commonplace, but at the time it was unheard of. And then there's films like The General, Buster Keaton's, arguably Buster Keaton's greatest film and considered one of the greatest films ever made, shot in the Bend area. Of course, everyone knows Animal House and uh, The Goonies. And there's so many classics. Wild was, has had a profound influence in Southern Oregon in terms of increase in tourism and increase in other film productions are happening here. Um, so there, there's a lot of opportunities for films and a lot of studios have taken advantage of, of Oregon for film production here because the you, you just can't replicate Crater Lake in a, on a soundstage. Yeah, it's true. And and honestly, I mean, don't we all get sick of seeing Los Angeles in movies? You know, yeah. I mean, so many films are made there and it's just like, oh, 
I mean, I want to see something different, you yeah. know, and that's why, and Portlandia too, in Portland with the, the TV, you know, it, there's, there's some great things happening in Oregon, but, but I'd be fascinated to see that list of films because I think it'd be really eye-opening. Last I checked, there was over 300 films that have been shot in the state of Oregon. And you, you mentioned everything being filmed around L.A. I remember when I first got there for the first month or so, I was traveling around Los Angeles. Almost every street corner I recognized from from, from some TV show or some movie, like, oh, that's where they shot that. That's where they shot that. Come on, I'm like, who cares? I know. <laughs> I know. Like three blocks away from where I live is the Back to the Future house, you know. <laughs> and everybody can say that. Every, a friend of mine says, oh, yeah, my somebody shot something at this house, you know, and the Brady house is over here and this house is over here. And so it's, it's always and then you just don't care or seeing the famous people drive around in their expensive, you know, electric cars. You know, you see that all the time. People are like, yeah, you just don't care about it anymore. So I know Abducted in Plain Sight is the big promotional push right now coming to Netflix in in mid-January. So uh, all of our listeners can check that out. But what is coming up on the horizon? Because for every project that's new, you're already two or three deep into planning what's going to be down the road. Yeah, it's definitely true. Uh, I I have been developing a lot of things in my head. There's been a few projects that I've kind of gotten down on paper and, and sort of blocked out. Um, I've got a, a, and most of them are of the true crime genre because it's, it's really interesting because we spent so much time on abducted in plain sight, um, building an audience, you know, through sort of traveling on the festival circuit, um, talking to people afterwards, using social media. Um, and, and so we've spent a lot of time cultivating an audience. And what was interesting to me is when we first started the film, I don't think I quite realized that it was a true crime film or could be categorized that way. And then a true crime audience, we were invited to the Toronto um, True Crime Film Festival. And it was, there aren't that many true crime festivals, which is a little shocking to me, but we had such an incredible audience come out for our film. And, and it was at that moment where I realized that this is a portion of our audience that is vibrant, um, that is very active, that are insatiable. And if you look at, and that's when I started looking at trends in television and how investigation discovery is the fastest growing network right now and how this true crime is really something that people love. And, and I feel like it's something that made my film more sellable. And ultimately, we do want to be making a living in this industry. And so that is something that that comes into play, you know. And there's so many friends of mine who have the most incredible documentaries that, that they've spent five to seven years on that can't sell them. And they're looking towards self-distribution, which is phenomenal, and more money, more of a percentage of the money will go back into their pocket, which is amazing. But it's another two to four years of their life selling this film. And I... I have to be honest, I want to move on to the next one. You know, I've been with this one for five years now, and I really want to sink my teeth into something new. So so the true crime genre is 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 what I'm looking at. We've got a, a series that we're developing about um, uh, BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill, uh, Serial Killer, and looking more at that from a community element and how the community was really terrorized. Um, that's a, a scripted uh, episodic series that we're working on. Another, another, another couple of uh, true crime 
feature films and um, a, a couple of series that I'm, I'm hoping to sort of pitch, you know, when we get back to Los Angeles and uh, in the coming, you know, January, February uh, to pitch to a few people. And, um, and we'll see. We'll see what comes out of it. So for people who may have that great story idea that uh, gets you to come back to the Klamath Basin and film or, or just something in, in general, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, absolutely. You can uh, go to the website, which is abductedoc.com. Uh, you can go to my personal website, which is really easy to remember. It's skyborgman.com. And uh, send me an email and uh, tell, me, tell me what kind of stories you have. Uh, I mean, really, I'm really, really serious when I say if, if we could get a great story in Klamath Falls, I mean, let's make it. Let's make it. It's so, it would be so incredible. Sky Borgman is one of several Klamath native filmmakers who have gone on to great success in Hollywood and the film industry. Her latest project, Abducted in Plain Sight, is going to be coming to Netflix in mid-January, so be sure to add that to your list. Sky, thank you for taking time out of your holiday schedule, coming back home to see family and taking time out to talk about the film industry. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been wonderful. 